This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington As read by Leah Domes Tape number 3 1618 The strongly contrasted tendencies of the two contending parties, Prelatists and Puritans, were rendered very apparent in the year 1618 by the publication of the King's Book of Sports. This book was drawn up by Bishop Morton at the King's direction and dated from Greenwich, May 24, 1618. Footnote. Fuller, Volume 3, pages 270 to 273. End of footnote. The pretext for producing such a book was that the strictness of the Puritans in keeping the Sabbath day alienated the people and left them exposed to the temptations of the Jesuits, who took occasion to seduce them back to popery. To prevent this, His Majesty proposed not that the people should be more carefully instructed in religion, but that after divine service, they should be indulged in such recreations as dancing, archery, leaping, May games, wits and ales, Morris dances, setting up of May poles, and such like amusements. That the people should meditate on their religious duties and prepare to practice the instructions given them in God's word did not seem to His Majesty at all a desirable matter it might have led them to favor Puritanism. Queen Elizabeth disapproved of preaching, lest it should teach the people to think, and perhaps to inquire into matters of state. King James aimed at the same result by making their only leisure day when they might possibly attempt the dangerous practice of cultivating their minds a day of mere recreation. The reason is obvious. Thinking men cannot be slaves, and both these sovereigns were desirous of establishing a complete despotism. Religious men must think, and think solemnly and loftily. Therefore, to prevent this, religion must give place to giddy mirth, and God's hallowed day must be profaned by every kind of idle recreation. And what must be said of the high church party? who lent their aid in this fearful desecration and despotic scheme. Were they the friends of pure and holy religion, of national improvement, of public freedom? 
This book of sports, however, was at first ordered to be read merely in the parish churches of Lancashire. But one author asserts that it would have been speedily extended over the kingdom, but for the decisive refusal of Abbott, who had recently succeeded Bancroft in the Archbishopric of Canterbury. But though a partial enforcement of this desecrating production was all that it could at that time obtain, its promulgation gave serious ground of dissatisfaction and dread to all the more decidedly pious persons in the kingdom, both Puritans and churchmen, and tended not a little to confirm the growing jealousy of high church measures. The kingcraft, of which James considered himself so great a master, was perpetually leading him astray, and involving him in dangerous political errors, which, blending with the religious struggles that had so long prevailed, both increased the numbers and gave intensity to the feelings of those who regarded with jealousy the arbitrary measures of the court. In one of his wise speeches, the king gave a large explanation of his views with regard to Puritanism, from which it appeared that he considered all to be Puritans who dared to oppose his absolute prerogative and to maintain the rights and liberties established by law. Footnote. Rapin, Volume 2, pages 192 and 193. End of footnote. At the same time, he discountenanced that system of theology generally termed Calvinism, though he had previously professed to hold it, and had sent divines to the Synod of Dort, where the opposite system, Arminianism, was condemned. But perceiving that the Puritans were Calvinists, he turned the sunshine of his favor toward those of the clergy who had begun to support Arminian tenets. In this manner, he most unwisely brought about a combination of two false and dangerous principles on the one side, and of two true and salutary principles on the other. The combination of despotism in the state and unsound theology in the church against the combination of political liberty and religious purity. The alliances formed on both sides were natural for there is a strong and essential relationship between the component elements of each. And yet this very combination was the cause of many peculiarities in the struggle which afterwards arose, and of the various aspects which it wore, as the one or the other, political or religious, obtained the ascendancy. The combination thus begun in theory was soon forced into actual existence, when, in 1620, the king, offended with the Parliament for mentioning the subject of grievances instead of bestowing money, commanded them to forbear intermeddling with his government, and upon their recording in their journals a remonstrance and protestation in defense of their ancient and undoubted rights and privileges, he, in a storm of fury, tore out the protestation with his own hand, dissolved the Parliament, and issued a proclamation forbidding his subjects to talk of state affairs. Footnote. Rapin, Volume 2, page 212. End of footnote. This was despotism undisguised, and the heart of England understood and felt it. 
the element of resistance to political tyranny began to work in the minds of men, many of whom had but little regarded the sufferings of the Puritans under an equal tyranny of an ecclesiastical kind. But the storm was delayed partly by the natural timidity of James, who was incapable of boldly executing what he tyrannically conceived, and partly also in consequence of his death, and the pause which naturally ensued at the commencement of a new reign, till its principles should be ascertained. 1625. Charles I, at his ascension to the throne in 1625, found the kingdom in a truly deplorable condition, on the point of being convulsed with internal dissension, despised by foreign countries, and its treasury totally exhausted. It would have required a wise and prudent king, and sage and able counselors, to have rescued the nation from such imminent and formidable perils. But Charles was narrow-minded and obstinate, impatient of advice except when it coincided with his own notions, bigoted in religious matters, entertaining the most despotic ideas of his royal prerogative, and so full of dissimulation that neither his word nor the most solemn treaties could bind him, as subsequent events amply proved. And his most trusted counselors were his father's recent courtier race of psychophants and oppressors. His marriage to Henrietta, daughter of the French king and the zealous papist, caused an additional ground of jealousy, lest persons of that religious persuasion should obtain undue and pernicious influence, and many events tended to strengthen that apprehension. Instead of relaxing the severe and persecuting measures under which the Puritans had so long groaned, Charles, instigated by Laud, Bishop of London, afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, continued to oppress that body of excellent men with increasing severity. A contest arose between Charles and his first Parliament, chiefly on account of their remonstrances respecting the dangerous increase of popery and their determination to proceed with the impeachment of his favorite, the profligate Duke of Buckingham. To stop these measures, the king suddenly dissolved the Parliament, and as he had not obtained the supplies which he desired, he proceeded to raise money by forced loans, ship money, and other arbitrary and illegal exactions. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 1, page 192. Whitlock, page 2, and a footnote. These violent encroachments upon liberty and property increased the spirit of disaffection which was already strong, compelling all who valued freedom to perceive that some decided stand must be made, unless they were prepared to sink in the degradation of utter slavery. 1628 during the interval which elapsed before the calling of the next Parliament, the clergy were employed to inculcate with all possible earnestness the doctrines of passive obedience and non-resistance, and to prove that the absolute submission of subjects to the royal will and pleasure was authoritatively taught in the Holy Scriptures. Eagerly did the courtly divines comply with these directions, 
vying with each other who should most strenuously promote the cause of despotism. In this glorious strife, Sid Thorpe and Man Waring were peculiarly distinguished, broadly asserting that the king is not bound to observe the laws of the realm, that the authority of Parliament is not necessary for the imposing of taxes, and that those who refuse obedience transgress the laws of God, insult the king's supreme authority, and are guilty of impiety, disloyalty, and rebellion. When the Parliament again met in 1628, they proceeded against man-warring for inculcating tenants destructive of the laws and liberties of the kingdom, and sentenced him to fine and imprisonment till he should make his submission. He submitted accordingly, but the king soon afterwards rewarded his services in the cause of tyranny by raising him first to a deanery and subsequently to the bishopric of St. David's. The other advocates of passive obedience also received promotion, and the nation was constrained to perceive what were the principles by which the king intended to govern. The controversy between high churchmen and Puritans, which had so long divided the kingdom, was thus forced to assume the character of one in defense of civil liberty. For it was clearly seen that the high church party, who had all along enjoyed exclusively the favor of the reigning monarch, were willing to procure and perpetuate that favor by supporting the royal prerogative in its most arbitrary pretensions, sacrificing without scruple equally the rights of conscience and the civil liberties of the kingdom. The contest continued in both its converging lines. On the one hand, the king strove to obtain supplies without redressing grievances, employing already that dissimulation which afterwards caused his ruin, and assenting to a bill or petition of right the provisions of which he never fulfilled. On the other, Laud, who on the death of Buckingham obtained an undivided ascendancy over Charles, prohibited doctrinal controversy respecting the Arminian tenets, and commanded the suppression of afternoon lectures, which were generally conducted by those Puritan divines who could not conform to the reading of the liturgy in the forenoon service. This cunning prelate was well aware that controversy on important doctrinal subjects cultivates the power of thought, and that lecturing cultivates knowledge. He knew also that men who have been trained to think and whose minds have acquired a store of sound religious knowledge are incapable of becoming the slaves of either tyranny or superstition. And as the full development of his measures required the people of England to become superstitious slaves, it was necessary to suppress everything which had a counteracting tendency. The same sort of instinctive perception of the readiest method of promoting mental and moral degradation led Law to persuade the king to revive the book of sports. This was accordingly done in the year 1633, in the name of that sovereign whom the Church of England still delights to style the martyr, though it would not be easy to tell of what cause he was the martyr unless it were a prelatic profanity, 
superstition, and despotism. It was not over one county that the book of sports was now to be set up, in opposition to the word of God. The bishops were directed to enforce the publication of it from the pulpit through all the parish churches of their respective dioceses. This caused great distress of mind to all the pious clergymen. Some refused to read it and were suspended in consequence. Others read it and immediately after having done so, read also the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, adding, This is the law of God, the other is the injunction of man. And notwithstanding the employment of both power and guile, the people generally refused to turn God's appointed times of holy rest into periods of heathen Saturnalia. In the meantime, the tide of political conflict was advancing broad and deep, and as it had been caused at first by the course of persecution on account of religion, when the Parliament sought from time to time to interpose in behalf of the suffering Puritans, it continued to retain its religious character. Very strong and earnest language was used by several of the leading members of the House of Commons, condemning equally the Arminian doctrines and the tyrannical proceedings of the prelatic party. And with similar directness and energy did they assail the illegal methods adopted by the king to raise money, and the oppressive conduct of the persons employed in that service. The king, finding the commons determined to defend their religious and civil liberties, and to refuse subsidies till the grievances of which they complained should be redressed, sent them orders to adjourn. This arbitrary command they refused to obey, till they should have prepared a remonstrance against the levying of tonnage and poundage, and accordingly proceeded to frame their remonstrance and protestation. This document declared in substance that whosoever should introduce innovations in religion or advise taking of tonnage and poundage not yet granted by Parliament or submit to such illegal impositions should be held as betrayers of and enemies to the liberties of England. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 1, page 659. End of footnote. The Speaker refused to put these propositions to the vote and attempted to leave the chair, but he was forced back to it and held there till they were read and carried by acclamation. The Commons then adjourned, and four of the leading members, Elliot, Hollis, Valentine, and Carrotton, were committed to the Tower, where Elliot was detained till he died, the others being released upon payment of heavy fines. Charles, having now learned that the Parliament would not submit to be made a passive instrument in his hands to accomplish what he might please, determined to assume the whole powers of the legislature, disregarding the form as well as violating the spirit of the Constitution, and realizing the absolute despotism so fervently advocated by a psychophanatic clergy. He ventured even to avow his desperate intention by a proclamation in which he forbade the very mention of another parliament. He had yet to learn that to shut up a strong feeling in the heart is to increase its suppressed strength and to give it entire possession of the inner being. 
as if for the very purpose of imparting additional intensity to the growing indignation of the kingdom, Laud, now Archbishop of Canterbury, proceeded with equal eagerness in imposing fresh ceremonies of the most absurd character upon the church and the infliction of excessive cruelties upon the Puritans. These popish ceremonies drove numbers into nonconformity and the barbarities perpetrated upon those who dared to complain or to refuse compliance provoked the nation almost beyond endurance. Alexander Layton was condemned to have his ears cut off and his nose slit, to be branded on the cheek, to stand in that condition in the pillory, and then to be cast into prison so he should pay a fine utterly beyond his means, a sentence equivalent to perpetual imprisonment. Burton, Bastwick, footnote, in passing sentence on Bastwick, the bishops denied that they held their jurisdiction from the king. Whitlock, page 22, end of footnote. And Prynne suffered similar cruelties, and great numbers were reduced to entire destitution because they dared to write or speak against Laud's popish ceremonies or against the prelatic system of church government. Numbers forsook the country and retired some to the Netherlands others to the settlements recently formed in America. Never, probably, was there a period in which the principles of religious and civil liberty and the feelings of human nature were more shocked and outraged. But a course of crime is also a course of infatuation. At the very time when the cruel tortures of these wronged and oppressed sufferers were awakening the most intense sympathy in the nation, the king adopted a measure which roused a corresponding degree of political indignation. Finding it difficult to procure supplies as readily as his necessities required, he devised a plan of assessing not only the maritime, but also the inland counties for sums of money, for the ostensible purpose of building ships of war. This tax, as even Clarendon admits, was intended not only for the support of a navy, but for a spring and magazine that should have no bottom, and for an everlasting supply for all occasions. This was clearly perceived and immediately opposed by the bold and wise asserters of national liberty. The celebrated Hampton refused to pay his share of the tax, and determined to bring the legality of levying such an impost to a public trial. About the close of the year 1639, the cause was tried before the twelve judges in the exchequer chamber. The judges hesitated. They perceived clearly that the law was in favor of Hampton, but they held their situations during the royal pleasure, and seven decided that the tax was legal, while one doubted and four condemned it. Footnote. Whitlock, page 24. End of footnote. His Majesty gained the decision but Hampton and Freedom gained the cause in the strong feeling which was roused throughout the entire kingdom. Another act of infatuation speedily followed. For a time the suffering Puritans alone had sought refuge from oppression in a voluntary exile, but now the defenders of civil liberty began to adopt the same course, 
At length, even Hampton and his cousin Oliver Cromwell, discouraged with their long and hitherto fruitless struggle, resolved also to seek in the new world that liberty which seemed to have forsaken its ancient English home. Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, page 618. End of footnote. But an order was published forbidding any to leave the kingdom without permission from the Privy Council. They remained, returned to the field of danger and of duty, and resumed a contest which presented now no medium between complete freedom and absolute slavery. No retreat, no cessation, no alternative but victory or death. Thus, by this act of despotic infatuation, Charles gave to his most formidable antagonists the terrible energies of desperate necessity and sealed his own dark and hapless doom. There was still another element introduced about this time, as if to render the dreadful combination perfect for evil. Although Law did not attempt to deny the king's supremacy in all matters ecclesiastical, yet the principle first promulgated by Bancroft, the divine authority of the Episcopal order, had taken possession of his narrow and restless mind, and impelled him to endeavor partially to realize it, though its full and ultimate bearing lay far beyond his reach even to imagine. He not only drew the half of the chancery business into the hands of persons nominated to their offices by the prelates, but also prevailed upon the king to allow the bishops to hold their ecclesiastical courts in their own names and by their own seals, without the king's letters patent under the great seal. This was a direct infringement of the royal prerogative, and to this he succeeded in adding another as glaring, namely the power of the bishops, to frame new articles of visitation without the king's authority, and to administer an oath of inquiry concerning them. Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, pages 584 and 585. End of footnote. In this manner, the prelates became possessed of extensive jurisdiction, both civil and ecclesiastical, not only independent of crown and parliament, but based upon the assumption of a divine right, which rendered them entirely irresponsible and beyond the control of human law. Had not the spirit of liberty, civil and religious, been at that time vigilant and strong, these prelatic usurpations must have soon reduced England to a state of the most abject slavery. And although the fearful recoil caused the death of both the wily prelate and the misled king, it is greatly to be feared that the law in principle is not yet dead, though it has long been dormant, that it may yet awake in pretentious strength, and that it may put forth a power and give rise to a struggle of tremendous magnitude before it be itself destroyed. At length, the king reached the turning point of his wild and reckless course. Instigated by his evil genius Laud, he strove to impose upon the Presbyterian Church and people of Scotland the whole mass of prelatic rites and ceremonies, for the sake of which he had already driven England to the extreme point of endurance. But that point had been long previously reached in Scotland and the attempt provoked an instantaneous and determined resistance. 
a large portion of the nobility, nearly all the middle classes, the whole of the ministers, and almost the entire body of the people, united in a solemn national covenant in defense of their religious liberties, resolved to peril life and all that life holds dearest, rather than submit to the threatened violation of conscience. The king raised an army to subdue them by force, but shrunk from the perilous encounter and framed an evasive truce. This abortive attempt exhausted his treasury and compelled him reluctantly to call a parliament, from which he hoped to procure supplies. The parliament met on the 13th of April, 1640, after an interval of twelve years. But the spirit of liberty was now stronger in the bosom of its members than it had formerly been, and it still less dispossessed to prostrate itself before the royal prerogative. His Majesty demanded supplies and promised then to grant time to take their grievances into consideration. The Commons began with applying for the redress of grievances and refused to proceed with the grant of the subsidy till these should be redressed. Disappointed and enraged, the King dissolved the Parliament and threw the leading members into prison. But as his need of money was urgent, he commenced exacting it more oppressively than ever, by forced loans, by ship money, by granting monopolies, and by every artifice which want could suggest and tyranny employ. And, as if conscious that episcopacy was the cause of the sovereign's distress, the convocation which met at the same time continued sitting after the dissolution of the Parliament, contrary to law and custom and granted a considerable sum of money to His Majesty to enable him to prosecute the Episcopal War. This appeared a dangerous precedent, fraught with peril to the liberties of the kingdom, since on the one hand the king could augment the revenues of the clergy, and on the other they could replenish his coffers, be his purposes what they might, without legislative authority and thereby give him the means of completing his despotic encroachments. Seventeen canons were also published by this convocation, in the sixth of which all clergymen are required to take an oath expressing approbation of the doctrine, discipline, and government of the Church of England, one clause of which says, Nor will I ever give my consent to alter the government of this Church by archbishops, bishops, deacons, archdeacons, and so on, as it stands now established. Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, page 630. End of footnote. From this clause it obtained the name of the etc. oath and became an additional element of strife between the prelatists and the Puritans, driving many ministers into the latter body because they could not consent to swear adherence to they know not what. Charles, having again obtained a sufficient sum of money to enable him to maintain an army, broke off all pacific relations with his Scottish subjects and marched northwards to subdue them by force. But they were not unprepared for such an event. The long course of intriguing dissimulation which they had detected and baffled, 
during the previous stages of their transactions with His Majesty had led them to the conclusion that he would observe the terms of the most solemn treaty no longer than till he could violate them with safety. They had therefore retained their military officers in pay and were in a condition to raise an army at a moment's notice. There had been also begun a private correspondence between them and the leading English patriots, and they had received assurance that if they should advance into England itself, they would be welcomed as deliverers. They accordingly crossed the border, defeated a strong party which opposed their passage of the Tyne at Newburn, took possession of Newcastle, and advanced into England. Alarmed with their progress and finding it impossible to raise and maintain a sufficient force to resist them, in the disaffected state of his English subjects, the king appointed commissioners to treat with the Scots at Ripon. This led to a cessation of hostilities for two months, commencing October the 26th, during which the Scottish army were to be maintained at His Majesty's expense. The remaining negotiations for peace were transferred from Ripon to London. It had again become necessary to call a Parliament for the adjustment of the important matters in dispute, and great exertions were made on both sides in the election of members. But the heart of England was now fairly warmed, and its strong spirit roused. By far the majority of the elections were decided in favor of the defenders of liberty, and as all knew that the crisis had come, all were thoroughly prepared for the struggle. In that Parliament was collected not only the flower of living Englishmen, but it may be fearlessly said that no age or nation has ever produced men of greater eminence in abilities and character than were the leaders of that celebrated assembly. To mention the names of Pym, Hampton, Cromwell, Selden, is to mention men of almost unequal distinction in sagacity, patriotism, strength of mind, and extent of learning. And those who held but a secondary position were, nevertheless, men who were possessed of talents and energy enough to have earned high renown in any period less prodigal of human power. Such was that House of Commons afterwards so famous under the name of the Long Parliament. Scarcely had this Parliament met on the 3rd of November, 1640, when ample proof was given that its members were fully aware of the great task they had to perform. They appointed four committees to conduct with rapidity the important matters before them, for religious grievances, for the affairs of Scotland and Ireland, for civil grievances, concerning popery and popish plots. In these committees, affairs were prepared for full discussion in the House, so that there might be neither loss of time nor mismanagement. Footnote. Whitlock, page 36. End of footnote. And as religious grievances had long been felt and had led to the greater part of the civil oppression which had roused the kingdom, the Parliament took these immediately into consideration. The canons of the late convocation 
were declared to be illegal and not binding, and sharp animadversions were made respecting Lot as their chief author. This led to the framing of an impeachment against him as engaged in the treasonable design of subverting the religion and laws of his country. The complaint of the Scottish commissioners against Laud, as the real author of all the commotions which had taken place in Scotland, formed a large and heavy portion of the charge, which led to the impeachment of the unfortunate archbishop. An accusation consisting of fourteen articles was drawn up, presented to the House of Lords, and the charge being sustained, he was committed to the Tower. About the same time, or rather a few days before it, the Earl of Strafford, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, was also impeached and committed to the Tower. The letters and dispatches which passed between Laud and Strafford clearly proved that they were the prime instigators of all the tyrannical measures which had characterized the government of Charles for the preceding twelve years at which time Strafford, then Mr. Wentworth, deserted the patriotic party and, like all apostates, became the most bitter enemy of the cause which he had forsaken. The very term employed by Laud, as distinctive of himself and his measures, thorough shows clearly the character of the keen, relentless spirit and despotic temper which filled his narrow mind and the haughty, dark, and arrogant nature of Strafford, conscious of great abilities, full of ambitious designs, and utterly unscrupulous with regard to the measures by which they should be carried into effect, rendered him in every respect a dangerous man, particularly as a confidential adviser and favorite minister of a monarch who himself aimed at despotism. It was not strange that the commons of England thought it necessary to remove such men from His Majesty's councils as a preliminary step towards the recovery of the nation's liberties. The result of these impeachments is well known, but as several important transactions intervened, these must first be narrated. Redress was granted to several of those who had suffered under prelatic tyranny. Prynne, Burton and Bastwick were released from their imprisonment in the Channel Islands and conducted through London in a sort of triumphal procession. Alexander Layton was also released from prison and appointed keeper of Lambeth Palace. Several bishops and other clerical dignitaries were accused of illegal and oppressive conduct and felt some portion of the weight of retributive justice and so strong was the indignation which long suppressed now burst forth with proportionally greater vehemence that some difficulty was experienced in restraining the people from inflicting upon their oppressors what Bacon terms wild justice. The floodgates were now opened, the popular mind began to rush forth, and it required both great strength and great dexterity to guide it into a safe channel. It had been part of the Laudian policy to prevent all public discussion respecting the high pretensions of prelacy. But freedom of discussion was now procured, and the press began to pour forth treaties 
of every kind and size, in which not only were the abuses of prelacy fully stated, but also the prelatic form of church government itself was strenuously assailed. Bishop Hall wrote in defense of episcopacy and was answered by a celebrated treaty under the name of Smectimnus, a word formed from the initial letters of the names of its authors, Stephen Marshall, Edmund Calamy, Thomas Young, Matthew Newcomen, and William Spurstow. Even the mighty Milton employed his pen in this keen literary warfare, and it is no rash matter to assert that in learning, talent, genius, and strength of argument, the Puritan writers immeasurably surpassed their antagonists and produced an impression on the public mind so deep and strong that it decided the controversy, so far as prelatic church government was concerned, even at its beginning. Along with the literary warfare, another method of assault, not less formidable, was employed. Petitions were poured into the House of Commons from every part of the country, signed by almost incredible numbers, against the hierarchy, some desiring its reformation, others praying that the whole system might be destroyed. Of the latter kind, that which attracted chief attention was one from the City of London, signed by about 15,000 persons and generally termed the Root and Branch Petition on account of an expression which occurs in its prayer, namely, that the said government, with all its dependencies, roots and branches, may be abolished. Counter-petitions were also brought forward in defense of the hierarchy, scarcely, if at all, less numerous. Debates arose in consequence, and very strong language was employed by several members, condemnatory of the oppressive conduct of the hierarchy. Bills were also introduced chiefly with a view of taking away legislative authority from the bishops by relieving them from the discharge of civil duties in the upper house. But the House of Lords rejected these measures and, after a protracted struggle, there seemed to be no prospect of getting that grievance remedied. A difficulty of a legal nature occurred in the trial of Strafford. Although his accusations specified matters of the most arbitrary and oppressive character, yet it was not clear that they fell within the express terms of statute definition of high treason. The charge was therefore so altered as to enable the commons to proceed with a bill of attainder, which passed that house and was brought before the Lords. There seemed to be great probability that it would be lost in that house when an event occurred which changed the whole aspect of affairs so far as that was pacific. A plot was formed by some leading officers in the army and the courtiers to bring the army to London in order to overawe the Parliament, rescue Strafford, and take possession of the metropolis. This plot was discovered, traced out, publicly stated to Parliament by Mr. Pym on the 2nd, May 1641, and immediately the conspirators absconded, some even seeking safety by fleeing to France. Footnote, Whitlock, page 43, and a footnote.
The effect was like a lightning flash, sudden and fatal. It revealed to the community their own peril and the nature of the measures which the king was capable of pursuing, and thus it drove them to the conclusion that his word or treaty could not be trusted, and that the only method of securing their own safety consisted in depriving him of all power to injure them. Numerous and tumultuary mobs assembled around the House of Parliament, rending the air with cries of justice, justice. In this state of public agitation, the peers passed the Bill of Attainder. Another important measure passed at the same perilous moment. The King was anxious that the Scottish army should return to Scotland, being well aware that its presence in England was a source of great strength to the Patriots, paralyzing at the same time his own military preparations. He repeatedly urged Parliament to relieve the country from the oppressive burden of maintaining these two armies, the Scottish and his own. The House of Commons had already borrowed large sums for the payment of the current expenses, and a still larger sum would be required for the completion of the transaction. But when the plot against the Parliament was detected, the citizens of London, who had hitherto advanced the necessary supplies on parliamentary security, refused to contribute any more on a security which appeared to be so precarious. Public credit being thus overthrown, the only expedient for its recovery which presented itself was to secure the continuation of the Parliament till these troubles should terminate. A bill was framed for this purpose, enacting that this present Parliament shall not be adjourned, prorogued, or dissolved without their own consent. This bill passed both houses with very slight opposition and received the royal assent by commission, along with the Bill of Attainder against the Earl of Strafford. Footnote, Whitlock, page 43, end of footnote. It would seem that the detection of the plot against the Parliament had completely stunned the King and his advisers, so that, in their guilty confusion, they were incapable of perceiving the vast import of such a concession which rendered the Parliament completely independent of and coordinate with the King during its own pleasure. Yet another step was taken of scarcely less importance. Mr. Pym moved that both houses might join in some bond of defense for the security of their liberties and of the Protestant religion. A protestation was accordingly framed, almost identical in principle with the National Covenant of Scotland though somewhat different in form, and less minute in detail. Footnote, Abidum, Rushworth, Volume 4, page 241, end of footnote. The protestation was as follows. I, A.B., do in the presence of Almighty God, promise, vow, and protest to maintain and defend, as far as lawfully I may, with my life, power and estate, the true reformed Protestant religion, expressed in the doctrine of the Church of England, against all popery and popish innovation within this realm, contrary to the said doctrine, and according to the duty of my allegiance, I will maintain and defend 
his majesty's royal person, honor, and estate, also the power and privileges of parliament, the lawful rights and liberties of the subjects, and every person that shall make this protestation, and whatsoever he shall do in the lawful pursuance of the same. And to my power, as far as lawfully I may, I will oppose, and by all good ways and means, endeavor to bring condign punishment on all such as shall by force, practice, counsels, plots, conspiracies, or otherwise do anything to the contrary in the present protestation contained. And further, that I shall, in all just and honorable ways, endeavor to preserve the union and peace betwixt the three kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland and neither for hope, fear, or any other respects shall relinquish this promise, vow, and protestation. This protestation was subscribed by the whole House of Commons on the 3rd of May and next day by all the peers present in Parliament, except two. It was then printed and sent to every part of the kingdom to be taken by the whole nation, and when it was opposed, the Commons passed a resolution declaring that whosoever would not take the protestation was unfit to bear office in the Church or Commonwealth. To this course of procedure, the King offered no opposition, and let it be observed that the English House of Commons acted a much more arbitrary part in the enforcing of this protestation than had been done in Scotland with regard to the National Covenant, and as this took place more than two full years before the solemn League and Covenant between the two kingdoms was even thought of, and was done by a House of Commons, all nominally Episcopalians, it proves that it is directly contrary to fact and truth to ascribe the severe measures of a long Parliament to Presbyterian intolerance. Events of great moment now followed each other with startling rapidity. A bill was passed abolishing the Court of High Commission, and another putting an end to the Star Chamber. Both these bills were signed by the King, and thus the main engines of oppression were destroyed. Acquiring fresh confidence by success, the House of Commons resumed their proceedings against the bishops and actually prepared articles of impeachment. The king, perceiving that he was waging an unsuccessful warfare, changed his course and suddenly intimated to the Parliament that he intended to pay a visit to Scotland to complete the pacification with that country. The long pending treaty was concluded and ratified, and His Majesty journeyed to his native country with such expedition as to show that some important measures were in his mind. The leading parliamentary politicians penetrated his design, which indeed was sufficiently apparent. He had felt the strength of that support which the presence in England of the Scottish army gave to the patriotic party, and he justly imagined that if he could not only detach the Scots from the English Parliament, but gain them to himself, he would then be able to reduce his refractory subjects to his own terms. 
The king's absence necessarily led to the adjournment of the parliament, but its chief committees continued to meet, and a small committee was formed to accompany His Majesty to Scotland. Footnote. The committee were the Earl of Bedford, Lord Howard, Sir Philip Stapleton, Sir William Armin, Mr. Hampton, and Mr. Fines. End of footnote. The secret purpose of this committee was to give to the leading Scottish statesmen such private information as should put them on their guard against the arts of royal dissimulation which might be practiced. For this the Scottish leaders were already prepared by their own painful experience, and although the king exerted himself to the utmost to give satisfaction to them, and bestowed honors on the chief of the covenanters, yet he could not remove their suspicions, still less induce them to pledge themselves for the support of his intentions. Not only were his majesty's expectations disappointed, but additional cause was given to his people to watch all his movements with increasing jealousy. Before the king's arrival in Scotland, the Earl of Montrose had been detected forming a conspiracy to betray the Covenanters, even while acting as one of their commissioners at Ripon. For this and other similar matters, he had been imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. Even in his confinement, he found means of corresponding with his associates, and, through them, with a king, and a plot was formed, of which there is strong reason to believe the king to have been aware to seize Argyle and Hamilton and either put them to death or hurry them on board a frigate which lay in Leith Roads and having thus struck terror into the Covenanters to put the army into the hands of the king at the head of which his majesty might return and overpower his refractory parliament in England. Footnote Bailey's Letters, Volume 1, page 392 Brody's British Empire, Volume 3, pages 150 to 155. End of footnote. The discovery of this plot excited a sudden and strong commotion, but the king endeavored to cause it to be regarded as entirely a groundless alarm, and redoubled his efforts to give all possible satisfaction to the Covenanters. This event, known by the name of the incident, sunk deep into men's minds and led them to entertain the belief that the king was capable of conniving at any measure, however dark and bloody, provided that it could promote his progress towards absolute despotism. The fearful outburst of popish fury termed the Irish Massacre, taking place at the same time, gave to all these suspicions the most dark and dreadful aspect and filled the heart of both England and Scotland with intense horror and alarm. And although it may be difficult to prove that Charles directly instigated the Irish Papists to this insurrection, or anticipated the terrific deeds that were done, yet it would be still more difficult to acquit him of knowing that it was intended, and of conniving at it, with the expectation of turning it to his own advantage, by means of the armed forces which would be placed under his command. Footnote. 
the perusal of a declaration of the commons, and so on, July 25, 1642, would prove to any impartial reader that there was such a plot between the Queen and the Irish Papists, and that the King knew of it. End of footnote. Such was the state of matters, and such the agitated temper of the kingdom, when Charles returned to London, again to resume his contest with the Parliament, now roused to a pitch of almost desperate determination. A committee had been appointed a considerable time before to draw out of all the grievances of the nation such a remonstrance as might be a faithful and lively representation to His Majesty of the deplorable state of the kingdom. This remonstrance, consisting of 206 articles, footnote, Rushworth, Volume 4, pages 438 to 451, Whitlock, page 49, end of footnote, was read in the House of Commons on the 22nd of November, 1641. It had to encounter a very strong opposition, and after a debate which lasted from three in the afternoon till three in the morning, it was carried by a majority of eleven, the votes being 159 to 148. Within a few days after the remonstrance had been presented to His Majesty, and before he had returned an answer, it was printed and dispersed all over the kingdom. By this step, certainly defective in courtesy, the Parliament fairly took their ground threw themselves and their cause upon the principle and intelligence of the kingdom. And thenceforth, the struggle was won between the sovereign and the nation. The trial of the bishops, who had been impeached as authors of the nation's grievances, came next. The bishops attempted to stay the proceedings by entering a demurrer. Great and dangerous tumults arose in consequence of the position taken by the prelates, and they, alarmed and considering themselves exposed to personal danger, determined to abstain from going to the House of Lords, and drew up a protestation against whatsoever should be done by Parliament in their absence, as null and of no effect. Footnote. Whitlock, page 51. End of footnote. Their greatest enemies could not have suggested to them a more self-destructive course. They were immediately accused of acting in a manner destructive of parliaments and assuming a negative voice in the legislature, possessed by the king alone, and a new impeachment being framed on this ground, ten of them were sent to the tower. 1642 these proceedings exasperated the king to such a degree that he immediately resolved to retaliate and sent the Attorney General to the House of Commons to impeach of high treason five of the leading members, namely Lord Kimbolton, Sir Arthur Hazelrig, Denzel Hollis, John Pym, John Hampton, and William Stroud. The commons not having ordered them into custody, the king himself went to the house next day, January 4th, to seize them, attended by a crowd of armed men. They had received notice of his intention and withdrawn, 
so that when he placed himself in the speaker's chair and looked around him, he perceived that this violent and unconstitutional attempt was abortive. Footnote. Whitlock, page 50. End of footnote. The most intense excitement arose. Parliament adjourned for a week. The citizens of London protected the five members and offered to raise the trained bands for the protection of Parliament itself. In vain did the King attempt to overawe them by fortifying Whitehall and placing artillerymen in the tower. They were equally resolute and prepared to bear back force by force if necessary. In this great moment, when every measure was surcharged with peril, the king's infatuation again prevailed, and instead of remaining either to amend his error or to confront the danger, he forsook Whitehall on the 10th of January, removing himself to Hampton Court, then to Windsor, and soon afterwards to York, leaving all the elements of strife which his despotic proceedings had aroused to combine and rush onward in a torrent of irresistible might. Very soon after His Majesty's departure from London, the bill to remove the bishops from the House of Lords, that they might not be entangled with secular jurisdiction, was again brought forward, passed by a large majority on the 6th of February, and on the 14th of the same month obtained the royal signature by commission. But the intentions of the king soon began to display their hostile aspect, too evidently to be any longer misunderstood. From York he made a rapid movement upon Hull, at the head of a considerable body of cavalry, on the 23rd of April, for the purpose of seizing upon that important town and taking possession of its magazines. Sir John Hotham refused to admit him with more than twelve attendants, having been appointed to his situation as governor by the Parliament, to whom he was responsible for its custody. And the king, in his disappointment and anger, declared him a traitor. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 4, page 567. End of footnote. Several manifestos passed between the King and the Parliament, both on the count of this event and with regard to the command of the militia. But the progress of negotiation, instead of producing an agreement, rendered the breach wider and wider, preparatory for an entire disruption. Considerable numbers of both houses forsook the Parliament and joined the King. An army was formed and Hull was invested in regular form. To meet this hostile movement, the two houses on the 12th of July resolved that an army should be raised for the defense of the King and Parliament and gave the command to the Earl of Essex. On the 9th of August, the King proclaimed Essex and his adherents traitors and also declared both houses guilty of high treason forbidding all his subjects to yield obedience to them. The Parliament, on the other hand, proclaimed all who should join the King's army traitors against the Parliament and the Kingdom. In another proclamation, the King summoned all his faithful subjects to repair to him at Nottingham, where, on the 22nd day of August, 
1642, he caused his standard to be erected in a field adjoining the castle wall. Few complied with this warlike summons, but the standard was erected amid the gathering gloom and the rising gusts of a commencing tempest, which, ere evening, increased to a perfect hurricane and dashed to the earth the royal banner. Footnote. Clarendon, Volume 2, page 720. End of footnote. As if ominous of the fierce storm of civil war then bursting on the land, and the disgrace and ruin that awaited the royal cause. It had for some time been clearly perceived by the Parliament that war was inevitable, especially after the king's attempt upon Hull, and they accordingly began to make all necessary preparations. The friendly countenance and support of Scotland was of the utmost importance, and this, therefore, they resolved to secure. Twice had the Council of Scotland attempted to mediate between the King and the Parliament, first in the beginning of the year and again in May. But though the Parliament accepted their mediation, it was rejected by the King in a peremptory tone, commanding them to be content with their own settlement and not to intermeddle with the affairs of another nation. The English Parliament, understanding that the General Assembly was to meet in Edinburgh about the end of July, addressed a letter to that body, stating the perilous aspects of affairs, and expressing their desire to avoid a civil war, and yet to promote reformation in both church and state. The Assembly's answer, dated 3rd August, expresses sympathy with the sufferings and dangers of England recommends unity of religion, that in all His Majesty's dominions there might be one confession of faith, one directory of worship, one public catechism, and one form of church government, accusing the prelatical hierarchy of being the great impediment against obtaining that desirable result. A letter from a number of English divines was addressed to the same assembly, in which, after expressing gratitude for previous advices, they state that the desire of the most godly and considerable part amongst us is that the Presbyterian government, which hath just and evident foundation, both in the word of God and religious reason, may be established amongst us, and that, according to your intimation, we may agree in one confession of faith, one directory of worship, one public catechism, and one form of government. Footnote. Acts of Assembly, 1642. End of footnote. From these expressions, it is evident that both the English Parliament and the Puritan divines were perfectly aware of the views entertained by the Scottish Parliament and Assembly, and yet did not hesitate to seek assistance and to assent to the idea of a uniformity in religious worship which Scotland regarded as an indispensable condition. Nor does it appear that the English Parliament entertained any reluctance to procure Scottish aid on such terms. For in the month of September, a bill was passed through the House of Commons, and on the 10th of that month, through the House of Lords, entitled an act for the utter abolishing and taking away of all archbishops, 
bishops, their chancellors and commissionaries, and so on, ordaining that after the 5th of November, 1643, there shall be no archbishop, and so on, including the whole array of dignitaries and cathedral functionaries, and that all their titles, jurisdictions, and offices shall cease, determine, and become absolutely void, that their possessions should return to the king, that the property of cathedrals should be vested in trustees, who should give a stipend to their late possessors, and out of the remainder support preaching ministers both in towns and through the country where required. Footnote. Neil, Volume 2, pages 150 and 151. End of footnote. Thus was the English hierarchy overthrown by a parliament which even Clarendon admits to have been composed of men favorably disposed to episcopacy. And this overthrow took place at a time when the parliament had not resolved to what form of church government a legal ratification should be given, a whole year being allowed to elapse before the act of abolition should take effect, to allow ample time for the deliberations of an assembly of divines which they intended to call together for that purpose. And so far was the Scottish General Assembly from attempting to force England to adopt the Presbyterian form of church government that they abstained from framing a confession of faith and directory for themselves, till it should be seen what England would do, that the matter might not be foreclosed, but the Church of Scotland left at liberty to adopt the same general system, if it should prove such as to gain their approbation. Even at an earlier period, in the very commencement of the negotiations between the English Parliament and the Scottish Church and people, the latter had strongly advocated a uniformity of religious worship in the three kingdoms, and at the same time had as strongly disclaimed the idea of presuming to dictate to England in so grave and important a matter. Yet this accusation is constantly urged against the Church of Scotland by her adversaries in ignorance, it may be hoped, of the real facts of the case. Although it is not denied that the Scottish Church naturally cherished the expectation that any thorough religious reform in England would produce a church more resembling the other Protestant churches than it had been under its wealthy and political hierarchy. The sword was now unsheathed and for a period the more harmless war of negotiations and manifestos was abandoned, and a sterner conflict waged. Several battles were fought, some with doubtful success, and in others to the disadvantage of the Parliament. When the approach of winter led to a partial cessation of hostilities, proposals were again made for peace, and commissioners were sent from the Parliament to Oxford, to endeavor to frame a treaty. The Scottish Council sent commissioners also, and hopes were for some time entertained that the king would consent to such terms as might restore peace to the kingdom without the absolute surrender of its liberties. But it was discovered that His Majesty was busily engaged in framing a double plot, one part of which had for its object 
the seizure of London, the other that Montrose should raise the highlands of Scotland, while the Irish army should invade the western parts of that kingdom, and, having subdued the Covenanters, march to the assistance of the king against his English parliament. The discovery of these plots, the contumelious treatment sustained by the Scottish commissioners, and the manifest duplicity of the king himself, caused the treaty to be broken off, and both parties prepared to resume the conflict in the field. Again, the king's troops were repeatedly successful, and the parliament were constrained to make redoubled exertions to maintain their ground. For the same reason, they were the more anxious to enter into a close treaty with Scotland, and appointed commissioners to attend the Scottish Convention of Estates and General Assembly, which were to meet in the beginning of August 1643. Before that period, the Parliament had been endeavouring to advance in what they felt to be of primary importance, the Reformation of Religion. By the Act of September 10, 1642, it had been ordained that the prelatic form of church government should be abolished from and after the 5th of November, 1643, and it had also been determined that an assembly of divines should be held to complete the necessary reformation. In the meantime, enactments were passed for the better observance of the Lord's Day the suppression of the Book of Sports, and the keeping of monthly fasts and lectures, the removal of all superstitious monuments and ornaments out of churches, and for the trial of scandalous and inefficient ministers, as well as for granting some support to those of the Puritan ministers who had been ejected in former times for nonconformity or had recently suffered from the ravages of the king's army. One of the articles in the Grand Remonstrance of December 1641 had expressed the desire of the Parliament that there might be a general synod of the most grave, pious, learned, and judicious divines of this island, assisted with some from former parts professing the same religion with us who may consider of all things necessary for the peace and good government of the Church, and to represent the result of their consultations, to be allowed and confirmed, and to receive the stamp of authority. During the Treaty of Oxford, a bill of the same purport was presented, and rejected by His Majesty and when at length convinced that the king would make no concessions in behalf of civil and religious liberty, the Parliament resolved that they would delay no longer, but turn the bill into an ordinance and convene the assembly by their own authority. This important ordinance is dated June 12, 1643, and is as follows. The ordinance of the Lords and Commons in Parliament for the calling of an assembly of learned and godly divines and others to be consulted with by the Parliament for the settling of the government and liturgy of the Church of England and for vindicating and clearing of the doctrine of the said Church from false aspersions and interpretations. 
Whereas, amongst the infinite blessings of Almighty God upon this nation, none is or can be more dear unto us than the purity of our religion. And for that, as yet many things remain in the liturgy, discipline, and government of the Church, which do necessarily require a further and more perfect reformation than yet hath been attained. And whereas it hath been declared and resolved by the Lords and Commons assembled in Parliament that the present Church government by Archbishops, Bishops, their Chancellors, Commissionaries, Deans, Deans and Chapters, Archdeacons, and other Ecclesiastical Officers, depending upon the hierarchy, is evil and justly offensive and burdensome to the Kingdom, a great impediment to Reformation and growth of religion, and very prejudicial to the state and government of this kingdom, and that therefore they are resolved that the same shall be taken away, and that such a government shall be settled in the church as may be most agreeable to God's holy word, and most apt to procure and preserve the peace of the church at home, and nearer agreement with the church of Scotland and other reformed churches abroad and for the better effecting hereof, and for the vindicating and clearing of the doctrine of the Church of England from all false calumnies and dispersions, it is thought fit and necessary to call an assembly of learned, godly, and judicious divines to consult and advise of such matters and things, touching the premises, as shall be proposed unto them by both or either of the Houses of Parliament and to give their advice and counsel therein to both or either of the said houses, when and as often as they shall be thereunto required. Be it therefore ordained by the lords and commons in this present Parliament assembled, that all and every the persons hereafter in this ordinance named, that is to say, here follow the names, and such other persons as shall be nominated and appointed by both Houses of Parliament, or as many of them as shall not be wedded by sickness or other necessary impediment, shall meet and assemble, and are hereby required and enjoined, upon summons signed by the clerks of both Houses of Parliament, left at their several respective dwellings, to meet and assemble at Westminster, in the chapel called King Henry the Seventh's Chapel, on the first day of July, in the year of our Lord, 1,643. And after the first meeting, being at least of the number of forty, shall from time to time sit, and be removed from place to place, and also that the said assembly shall be dissolved in such manner as by both Houses of Parliament shall be directed. And the said persons, or so many of them as shall be so assembled or sit, shall have power and authority, and are hereby likewise enjoined, from time to time during this present Parliament, or until further order be taken by both the said houses, to confer and treat among themselves of such matters and things, touching and concerning the liturgy, discipline, and government of the Church of England or the vindicating and clearing of the doctrine of the same from all false aspersions and misconstructions as shall be proposed to them 
by both or either of the said Houses of Parliament, and no other, and to deliver their opinions and advices of or touching the matters aforesaid, as shall be most agreeable to the Word of God, to both or either of the said Houses, from time to time, in such manner and sort as by both or either of the said Houses of Parliament shall be required, and the same not to divulge by printing, writing, or otherwise, without the consent of both or either House of Parliament. And be it further ordained by the authority aforesaid that William Twist, Doctor in Divinity, shall sit in the chair as prolocutor of the said assembly, and if he happen to die or be wedded by sickness or other necessary impediment, then such other person to be appointed in his place as shall be agreed on by both the said Houses of Parliament. And in case any difference of opinion shall happen amongst any of the said persons so assembled, touching any of the matters that shall be proposed to them as aforesaid, that then they shall represent the same, together with the reasons thereof, to both or either the said houses respectively. To the end, such further direction may be given therein, as shall be requisite in that behalf. And be it further ordained by the authority aforesaid, that for the charges and expense of the said divines, and every of them in attending the said service, there shall be allowed unto every of them that shall so attend the sum of four shillings for every day at the charges of the commonwealth at such time and in such manner as by both houses of parliament shall be appointed. And be it further ordained that all and every the said divines so as aforesaid required and enjoined to meet and assemble shall be freed and acquitted of and from every offense, forfeiture, penalty, loss, or damage, which shall or may arise or grow by reason of any non-residence or absence of them, or any of them, from his or their, or any of their church, churches, or cures, for or in respect of the said attendance upon the said service, any law or statute of non-residence, or other law or statute enjoining their attendance, upon their respective ministries or charges, to the contrary thereof notwithstanding. And if any of the persons before named shall happen to die before the said assembly shall be dissolved by order of both houses of Parliament, then such other person or persons shall be nominated and placed in the room and stead of such person or persons so dying, as by both the said houses shall be thought fit and agreed upon. And every such person or persons so to be named shall have the like power and authority, freedom and acquittal to all intents and purposes and also all such wages and allowances for the said service during the time of his or their attendance as to any other of the said persons in this ordinance named is by this ordinance limited and appointed, provided always that this ordinance or anything therein contained shall not give unto the persons aforesaid or any of them, nor shall they in this assembly assume to exercise any jurisdiction, power, or authority ecclesiastical whatsoever, 
or any other power than is herein particularly expressed. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 5, pages 337 to 339. End of footnote. Such was the ordinance calling together the famous Westminster Assembly of Divines. And while that ordinance is immediately before the reader, it may be expedient to direct his attention to some of its peculiarities. About nine months had elapsed since the passing of the bill for abolishing the hierarchical form of church government, during all which period there was no form of church government in England at all. It was impossible, therefore, that the assembly could meet in any ordinary form either as a convocation according to the prelatic system or by the votes of the ministers according to the Presbyterian system. But it was of necessity called by the Parliament who nominated all the members themselves for the purpose of obtaining their advice respecting the further reformation which should take place and the organized form which should be assumed by the Church of England. For though the prelatic system had been abolished, yet the Parliament did not imagine that the Church had therefore ceased to exist, as the language of the ordinance proves. Let it be observed also that one object in view by the Parliament in calling this assembly was for the express purpose of procuring a nearer agreement with the Church of Scotland and other reformed churches abroad so that, as there were no other kinds of national churches but the Episcopalian and the Presbyterian, it must have been the intention of the English Parliament to bring their church nearer to the Presbyterian system, if not to adopt that system entirely. It is therefore equally calumnious and absurd to accuse the Church of Scotland of attempting to constrain the English Parliament in its intended ecclesiastical reform for the purpose of getting the Presbyterian polity introduced. The Parliament had to choose to retain the prelatic system with all the tyranny and oppression which had become absolutely intolerable to adopt the Presbyterian, to which the Puritan ministers were already predisposed, or to have no national church at all with the imminent peril of national anarchy. Please continue listening on tape number four.